We'll be taking up John 20 at verse 24. Hear now the word of our God. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. And so he said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in that believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's join together in prayer. Almighty God, you have appointed your Son as a Savior of sinners. You sent him who is the Word of God into the world, coming, taking to himself our humanity of the Virgin Mary. Father, we rejoice, O God, that you have sent us a Savior, that you have not left us alone in the wilderness of sin and the rebellion of sin without ability in and of ourselves. We thank you, O God, that you have appointed your Son, Jesus Christ as our Savior. Father, as he has spoken in his word, we pray now that you would speak through the preaching of your word as you have ordained, that your spirit would attend both its preaching as well as its hearing, and that you would accomplish all your purpose, for you promise that your word will not return unto you void. And so, Lord, bless the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to spend some time hearing about a man that perhaps you've heard about, a man named Thomas. Um, Often, when we think of Thomas, there's an adjective, uh, an identifier, where we think of Thomas. I grew up hearing of doubting Thomas. Really? What we need to understand is Thomas is a man just like us. There's nothing in the text that says he's doubting. We're told that he doesn't believe in the resurrection He doesn't believe that Christ is risen. As we will see, that was the common position of all the disciples. You read the uh, four Gospels, you will find that Jesus often was mildly rebuking the disciples as they were with him, particularly as they've been with him a number of years, and they'd be fearful, they'd be anxious, they would demonstrate unbelief. And Jesus would say, have I been with you so long, and yet you don't understand. Or when he warned them of the leaven of the Pharisees and they were thinking, oh, it's because we didn't bring bread. You see there was this confusion um, and a lack of understanding amongst the disciples. You will remember two weeks ago, earlier in John's Gospel, the 20th chapter, we were looking at how amongst the disciples we see an immature faith. These were men who had faith. Uh, They had been worked on. Uh, The Holy Spirit had regenerated their hearts. They believed that Jesus was the Christ in in various levels, and they were walking with him, and they were seeking to honor and obey him. There was one who was not of faith, and that was Judas. And we saw how it turned out for him. But these men have faith. And so we need to understand as we look at Thomas, it wasn't that suddenly he was converted and believed. What's really in focus here is the same thing the other disciples had, believing that Jesus was risen. And indeed, that is amazing. You know, we believe, I hope all of you believe, that Jesus is risen, crucified, dead, buried, and risen again. It is a fundamental and foundational article of our faith that Christ is risen. That's where Thomas was. He was on the other side of the resurrection but he yet could not believe in the resurrection, and it had been no different with the other disciples either. 
It's not really until the transformational work of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, when the apostles are full of the Holy Spirit, that you see the conviction and and a demonstration of the Spirit's power as they preach Christ crucified and risen again. We're nearing the end of John's Gospel, and as we do, we now encounter in this passage the purpose for why John wrote. You've heard it often as we progress through this preaching of the uh, Gospel of John. This morning we'll look at it again more thoroughly. Remember John's purpose here that we heard the last words that I read from verse 31. They really tie back to John 3.16 or even to the beginning of, of his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And nothing was made apart from Him. But then John records, For God so loved the world that He gave. His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And John says, I've written the things that I've written. I've written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so we're going to use four main headings this morning. Thomas's immature faith, Jesus' second appearance, and the blessing of saving faith. And then finally, we'll look at John's reason or purpose for writing. We can begin with Thomas's immature faith. It's there in verse 24, 25. Um, it kind of sits between these two events. We heard in the previous passage how Jesus appeared to would have been the ten that were in the upper room and, and the women and others with them. And Thomas was not there. We saw... Two weeks ago that these disciples um, had one of the other ones not been present on that previous Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, uh, they would have been like Thomas. I I can't believe that Christ is risen. And you consider that if, if we go and bear witness of the gospel to people in our day. What is one of the great stumbling blocks? You know, a man was crucified. Many were crucified. Um. Many will stumble over the idea that God came down from heaven born of a virgin. But one of the great hindrances is the resurrection of the dead. Now we've seen a precursor to that in John 11 when Lazarus died. He was laid into a tomb similar to the one that Christ was laid into. And he lay there for four days. And then Jesus came and raised him from the dead. It's, it's a, perhaps we could say it's the greatest miracle that Jesus performed. And, and the sound of that miracle went throughout that whole region. And many were rejoicing, but the Jews were scandalized. But the one who raised Lazarus was the one who was laid in a tomb. And to think that that one, now dead, could come forth, that took faith. Or in Thomas's case, to see him, but as we will see, it took faith even for Thomas to fully embrace what he was seeing. When you remind you that uh, earlier in this chapter, in my case I need to turn back a page, you remember in verse 8, <clears throat> Peter and John went to the tomb. Uh, John being the younger, he ran on ahead, and then the other disciple uh, well, when they got there, Peter went on in. Then the other disciple, being John, came to the tomb, and he also went in, and he saw and believed. And I explained to you that he understood, seeing the linen, the fine linen laying there, that in the way that it was laid, he understood that Christ was not there, and there was some of an understanding. But John qualifies that, verse 9, for as yet they did not know the Scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. It's just not sinking, and nothing like this has happened before, and it will never happen again. Uh, the next time there will be this great resurrection, it will be when Jesus comes again, and with a, a shout, we'll raise those who are dead in Christ, and we'll be caught up into the heavens along with those who are living to ever be with the Lord. And so this is radical. It's a lot for the process. Now, we, we looked at how Jesus had been telling them he was going to Jerusalem. He was going to be crucified. He was going to be dead. He was going to be raised again. And they're hearing these words, but it was just unbelievable to them. And so it was, as John writes here, they did not yet know the Scriptures. And Jesus had promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to them. They would be filled with the Spirit, and he would lead them into all truth. Well, here's Thomas. He's being told from the others, and yet he cannot believe it. Thomas is no different than the rest of them. 
What if Thomas had been with them on the previous Sunday? Where was Thomas? We're not told. But in God's providence, we must understand he was absent. And we can be thankful for that. Why? Because one week later, we have one of the greatest confessions in the New Testament. We'll look at that in a moment. We can be glad because even as he had been told that Jesus was risen from the dead, Thomas remained unconvinced. This supplies us with yet further proof of the certainty that Jesus was dead and buried. Thomas understands that. There's those who, as we were looking at the crucifixion, death and burial, that that scoff and said there was but a fainting or he was in a coma. But here we have absolute proof Jesus was dead. Thomas is convinced of it. An eyewitness of those things, he's convinced and he needs in his humanity to have to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. We see then that Thomas's lack of belief was anchored in the reality of Jesus' death and burial. Therefore, Thomas is looking for some physical proof. As D.A. Carson puts it, quote, the risen Jesus must have some sort of physical continuity with the Jesus who was crucified. Thomas is saying, I want to see Christ. I, I know him. I know him physically. I know what he appears like. I want to see that. I hear your words, but I must see him. I must touch him. I know he was crucified. I want to put my finger into the place where the nails had been and my hand into his side where the spear had pierced him. John tells us that the ten disciples were present on that first resurrection evening and saw the risen Christ, they bore witness to Thomas. So you look at verse 25, the other disciples, that would be the ten, because remember what happened to Judas, having betrayed Christ, um, something of a grief fell over him. Unlike Peter, he didn't repent. He went out and hung himself. So they're down to 11. Well, then Thomas wasn't there the previous Sunday, and so there were only ten. And so these other disciples, those ten, said to him, We have seen the Lord. They're bearing witness to the reality, to their experience. They bear witness. They testify to Thomas of the realities. They're seeking to encourage him. They're testifying their own experience. They they want to build up Thomas in his weak faith. Thomas objected. And he even went so far as to declare that it would take what it would take for him to believe that Jesus was risen. It wasn't enough for him to hear the truth. We need to remember that when we're bearing witness the unconverted, the lost, those who are dead in their trespasses of sin. We need to bear witness. We want to testify, but that is not enough. As we've seen throughout the Scriptures, it requires the working of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's necessary for Thomas, even in in this situation. Though he will see Jesus, it requires the work of the Spirit. So you think about it. Thomas Thomas says, uh, unless I see his hands and the print and the nails, put my fingers into the print and the nails, put my hand into his side, and I will not believe. And you can be as certain that Peter and John are saying, we saw him. We saw the wounds. They're bearing witness to them, to these realities. But Thomas says, it's not enough. Similar, Thomas in that moment is, is similar to what we encounter with others. Um, I hope that all of you have had the experience of bearing witness to the lost. You know, Jesus has sent us to be witnesses. We're told to go. And we're testifying of what we know, what we've experienced, as well as what we learn, the truth and the reality of God's word. And I would just say this to you. I would encourage you, if you're bearing witness, you're trying to witness to a lost family member, use the scripture. Use the word of God. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Use the word of God in your witnessing, but indeed testify of your experience. You encounter people and they object. I have a landlord and uh, my wife and I were with him at a meal and was bearing witness. He said, hold on, hold on. He said, no, I'm a journalist. I require, sound like Thomas, right? I must have proof. I must have facts. I must have evidence that I can examine. Isn't that what we encounter with people in the world? Perhaps you can think back to your own experience. I want proof. And so we give facts. There's plenty of evidence. 
That's one of the things we've been looking at as we've been looking at the John closing this out. The evidence of the resurrection of the Christ. There's a host of witnesses. Paul will later write that there was an occasion where 500 witnesses saw the risen Christ. And yet the world still scoffs because of the sinfulness of the human heart. The inability of the human heart to believe apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so man wants to establish his own standards. One of the commentators I read pointed out that we see Thomas tempting God. As if we're saying to God, I, I, I hear all this, but God, you got to do this. You need to give me this. We can be just that arrogant at times in our sinning. But God's merciful. Before we go on, some application. We have seen throughout John's gospel that the Jews were demanding a sign. And Jesus told them the only sign that would be given to them would be the sign of Jonah, referring to the reluctant prophet who, because of his rebellion, set sail in opposite the direction he was supposed to go. I think you children know the story. And then a great storm comes up, and in order that the men on the ship not be lost, uh, he's thrown into the sea. And God had prepared a great fish that then swallowed Jonah up, and he spent three days in the belly of the fish in the depths of the sea. That's what Jesus is referring to, that he... Like Jonah, Jonah being a type pointing to Christ, that he would be in the belly of the earth for three days. What are we supposed to do when we're telling other people of Jesus' power to save? What is it we're supposed to bear witness to? As I said a moment ago, we use the word of God. We share the word of God. We bear witness to what God has done in us. That's why it's so important to be memorizing the scriptures. Children, you look at me and you see an old man. And I'm an older man. I know that I'm the old man yet. I feel that fast coming. But you children, listen and hear me. Your minds are keen when you're young. It's easy for you to learn other languages in your child years. You've been made by God to learn any of the languages that are spoken amongst men. And that part of your brain also gives you a tremendous capacity to memorize Scripture. Memorize scripture. David in the Psalms says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. David is saying, I've memorized scripture from my youth upward. I have known the scriptures and they have equipped me. They have armed me. They have served as a light for my path. But children, by hiding the word of God in your heart, you will be equipped to share Christ with those who are perishing. I know it's hard for you to understand, children, but you enjoy many things. But one of the greatest joys that we can experience in life, I would say after our own salvation, is testifying, bearing witness of Christ and the salvation that's in Him and seeing God work in someone and convert them and they become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what a glorious joy that is. Equip yourself with the gospel because we want to use the Word of God. John's gospel is a tremendous place to start. It was a man, it was a child in Russia, the former Soviet Union he ended up being one of their, I don't know what they call them, the, the, the supreme dictators. I remember if it was Leonard Brezhnev or Nikita Khrushchev. But one of those two as a small child was taught the scriptures in the park. During, you know, every week he would go for candy and he memorized all four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have the ability. Hide the word of God in your heart, but especially make sure that Christ is in your heart. And then you have the Word of God and you have the witness of your own experience of God's power to save. Jesus said to the church that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be witnesses, my witnesses, to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And indeed, that's what happened. The Spirit equipping us. So, we've heard what Thomas wants. Uh, His demands, if you will. He said, I won't believe unless. Did Thomas get what he wanted? Children, I know there's times when you want things. And surely you can think about the times you didn't get what you wanted. But there are times when you do. Well, Thomas gets what he wants. And so we consider Jesus' second appearance. This is verse 26 through 28. So John goes on to tell us what happened in verse 26. Then after eight days, that's eight days from the previous 
Sunday. A whole week has gone by. This is the second Lord's Day. This is the second Resurrection Day. And what do we notice? They're gathered together. They were the, the disciples that come together inside. And what we see in here, we're just two Sundays into the time after Christ's resurrection. And what is the pattern already? The church of God is gathering on the first day of the week. They're gathering on what has been known as the Lord's Day. Indeed, it is obvious that it's becoming the Christian Sabbath and what they will then go on and call the Lord's Day. And so they were gathered. They're meeting together. Jesus has not been with them for a whole week. Now, if you're like me, you're, you're thinking, where was he? Right? Where was he that whole week? Well, we're not told. And what we're not told, it's often wise not to speculate because we become foolish in our ideas. If we needed to know, John would have recorded it. We don't need to know. But I think what we do learn from this is that Jesus is teaching the disciples, as he told Mary in the garden, do not hold me because I must go to the Father. Jesus has been telling them as his ministry is, is coming to this culmination and this, this glorious moment when he becomes a sacrifice for sin. He's been telling them, I'm going to return to my Father. I have come down from heaven. I'm going back to heaven. That's what the Jews were scandalized by that language. He makes himself out to be God. As a matter of fact, that is who he is. Jesus has been telling them that. And so here, he's letting them know in this time of his absence that things will be different. He's not going to be with them day in and day out. They're not going to follow him up and down through the land as he goes through his ministry. He's handing off his ministry. He's delegating his ministry of bearing witness of the coming of the kingdom of God to them. And so he's not with them through those 40 days or for those weeks. And remember, it was 40 days from his resurrection and Jesus ascended to the Father. And you remember there was 40 days at the beginning of his ministry. I think it's Matthew and Mark tell us that after he was anointed as the Christ, that the Spirit carried Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days. And there he fasted. He was not with anyone. No one knew where he was at. The Spirit had taken him away. And now in these 40 days, there are many times when he's not present and no one knows where he's at. And so we see this this day, eight days later, was very much like the previous day. The disciples were gathered. They're inside. And John notes, Thomas was with them. That's the difference. Thomas is with them this time. And then Jesus came. The door's being shut. Just a little comment on it. Last week I didn't make this clear. That word being shut in the Greek, it's, it's more than just that somebody's closed the door. It's the idea of being locked. Maybe some of your translations read that the doors were locked. This is shut in a secure manner. They were shut inside. And then Jesus came. It's not explained to us. We're not told how it happened. We know something's different about his resurrection body, but he's there. And again, we're not told how it was, but he's there. Suddenly Jesus stands in the midst of their gathering. Let's just reflect on that. Why are we here? It's the first day of the week. We're remembering the resurrection. Like they, we have assembled together to worship our God. And Jesus meets with us. We do not see him, but he is spiritually present with us in our worship. We should come with that expectation that when we gather as God's people together, where even two or three are gathered together in his name, he is there in the midst of them. We should come with an expectation and a confidence that Jesus will meet with us. We come from the weak and perhaps you come, you're dirty. You have sinned. It's been an extraordinary week of sin for you. Come to the assembly of God's people. Jesus meets with us here. Perhaps you're overwhelmingly discouraged, maybe anxious or depressed. Things have been dark. There's been loss. Perhaps you've been sick or you've lost your job or a child has died. Any number of suffering has come upon you. Where will you meet with Jesus? In the assembly of the saints. Come for the Lord is with his people in their midst. We see that these two Lord's days that John has recorded. Jesus comes and meets with his people. And connected to that, what what do we notice? I pointed this out last week. Verse 26, the very last thing. Jesus stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. That's what Jesus says to us when we come to worship. We, we should expect that. Uh, we, we hear Him call us to worship. We sing praises to Him. We invoke His name in prayer, asking to Him to come down. For God would meet with us. 
Whatever our situation, whatever, whatever our condition, we're expecting God. And that we hear the law. We're reminded of our sinfulness. But then we hear the assurance of the gospel that is in Christ Jesus. Child of God, if you are bound to Christ by faith, your sins are forgiven you. They are forgiven. And there's a pronouncement of peace. Acknowledging your sin. You have peace with God in Christ Jesus. But here Jesus speaks peace. And it's the plural, peace to y'all. He's not just speaking to one of them. It's not that anyone should think, oh, this is just my little time with Jesus. No, it's peace to you all. To the assembly of the saints, to the congregation of the firstborn, Jesus speaks peace. This is not just like the greeting that the Jews often gave to one another. Shalom, peace. You know, it became so much of a habit like we might say, hey, or how you doing? No, when Jesus speaks peace, he gives peace. And this peace is found in Christ. We have peace with God, as we said last week, in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God because our sins are forgiven. We have peace with God because we have been brought from being rebels and apart from God under His wrath. We've been brought near to God in Christ Jesus. We are the children of God. We have peace with one another. We have peace of conscience. Jesus says, peace to y'all. And God's word goes forth. It accomplishes but he sends it forth. And even as they would have been aware of that, my friends, when we come to worship and God speaks to us in our worship, it's not empty. It's, we're not just going through the motions. We're not just observing some traditions or patterns. God in Christ Jesus, the living word, speaks to us. Do you know the peace that passes all understanding and the peace that is found in Christ So then Jesus calls Thomas to come to him. Verse 27, he says, and he says to Thomas, reach your finger here. What a moment. Thomas is there. I'm convinced that Thomas is already ashamed of his demands. He's already overwhelmed with the presence of the living Christ, even as we've seen others, you know, they fall down and worship him. But nonetheless, Jesus says, reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Did Thomas do that? I don't know. Jesus commands it. And Thomas is a man of faith. I think that Thomas obeyed him. We're not told that it was so. But children, you see how tender Jesus is? We're told by an Old Testament prophet that a bruised reed he would not break. A smoking flax he would not stuff out. You know what that means? You ever walk in a marsh or in a field? And when you walk, or when animals walk through, the grasses get kind of broken or, or wounded, injured, and they're, they're, they're leaning because uh, something has hit them. And what that, the word in the Old Testament about Jesus, he's so tender that he won't come along to snap it off. He cares about bruised reeds. Are we bruised reeds? Children, you've, you've had experiences where you feel like a bruised reed. Or a smoking flax. It's where something is, there's, there's been fire, but the fire's gone out, but there's still some embers in it. It's still a little bit burning what's there, and there's a little smoke coming off from it. You ever seen a candle blown out, children? There's that little red bit that lingers. And your mom or your dad might wet their fingers and pinch it out. That's to snuff out the smoking flax. Jesus is tender. He would not do that. He comes. And where we may have only just a little bit of faith, he, he breathes into it. This is the tenderness of Jesus. And we see Jesus deal with Thomas so tenderly. I don't think that he speaks with indignation and saying, Come here and put your hand, poke your fingers. He gets a tenderness that Jesus exhibits to him. Thomas says, immature faith. And Jesus did not just come to Thomas and say, get over your objections. Why don't you just grow up? That's so harsh. Jesus is not like that. He's tender with us. That's what I would say to you. Maybe there's moments where your faith seems so small. Pray like the father whose child had the demon. Jesus said, do you believe that I can deliver him? And the father says, I do. But help my unbelief. That's often our condition. We have a little faith. Uh, but we recognize 
would I have a great faith? I think this father's saying, well, there's a part of me believes, but I, I don't know. This, this is a big ask. And so what does he do? He petitions to Christ, help my unbelief, strengthen my faith. And Jesus delights to strengthen the faith of his people. Like the Syrophoenician woman, her, her daughter had a demon. She came finding Jesus. Her daughter was not with, him, with her. And she said, you know, would you deliver my daughter? And Jesus, we, we know that account. It seems uncharacteristic. He's pressing back. He said, well, I would come to the Gentiles. She said, yes, but even the dogs pick up the crumbs under the table. And Jesus, seeing her faith and with his resistance to just give her what she wants, her faith grows. She came seeking to have her daughter delivered, and she went away with that. But her encounter with Jesus also led to her faith being strengthened. Remember that, brothers and sisters, in difficult circumstances, in the hardships and the trials. Jesus wants our faith to grow. Maybe this is a little bit too speculative. I don't think so. I think it consists with the principle. You know, if we had a like a faith gauge. And we could have measured the ten apostles after they've seen the resurrected Christ and see their faith grow and seeing Jesus. And then Thomas, whose faith is so weak, and, and then he has this encounter. I'm inclined to think that Thomas's faith might have been greater than the others because he was so reluctant and resistant. And then this, to the tenderness of Jesus, Jesus mercifully strengthens the faith of Thomas, even as we all have faith at different levels than one another and even throughout the course of our life. And so Thomas is encouraged by Christ to probe his wounds. Just come handle me. Having done this, Jesus then commands Thomas, no longer be unbelieving. At the end of verse 27, do not be unbelieving, but believing. The, The original language here, um, has this idea of continuation. Thus I've read it. No longer be unbelieving, but believing. There's, there's a rebuke in this by our merciful Savior, but it's not harshly given. It's not with malice. Here he is calling Thomas to mature faith, even as the others must. So we've talked about how Christ is willing and ready to do that. Help my unbelief. Look with me at how Thomas responds in verse 28. We're not told what he did. We're not told if he touched Jesus. But we see what happened inside Thomas, did we not? And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. I said in the introduction that we would encounter one of the greatest confessions of faith in the New Testament. And here it is. My Lord and my God. Thomas yields to Jesus as the Holy Spirit works in his heart. And he cries out with faith and no doubt a level of shame for his immaturity. We've had those experiences. But Jesus is not chastising for that, for the unbelief that had gripped his heart. What is he doing? He's worshiping. And oh, what a confession Thomas makes. My Lord and my God. There's, there's parallels here to what John wrote, verse 31, that you believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. That's what Thomas is saying. My Lord and my God. This is his confession. He declares that Jesus is his Lord, his master. He has been that for three years to some degree, but there's, there's a great jump forward in Thomas's understanding and, and an embrace of who he is. You remember when Jesus came walking on the water and, and there were other miracles were done, mighty miracles, that these men marveled, who is this? What manner of man is this? As they were experiencing Jesus in their midst over those three years, but now... Thomas surrenders all. We don't hear these words from the ten. I'm not suggesting that they did not own Jesus as Lord and God, but here we hear this testimony. And in God's providence, Thomas wasn't there last week. He was there this week. And thus we have this written set before us. What is Jesus saying? I mean, Thomas saying when he says, my Lord, he's saying that Jesus is worthy of obedience. Our wholehearted obedience. Children, I want to talk to you again. In your home, God has set your parents over you as representatives of himself. God has given you parents 
to be a picture to you in your youthfulness, your young childhood even, of God and his authority. And it is right then that you give your parents that obedience. When they tell you to do something, you should obey. And proper obedience is immediate, without excuse and without argument. Obey. That's what the disciples would have done. That's Thomas is saying, my Lord, you're worthy of my obedience. I surrender all. We sing hymns that speak of this. I surrender all to Jesus. I surrender. Adults, I'll speak to you now. That's easily sung, isn't it? But there are times when we're not surrendering all. But we have a merciful Savior that we can come to. Thomas also declares that Jesus is God. He acknowledges the deity of Christ. It all makes sense to him. All that he's seen. You know, Thomas has had faith, an immature faith. There's things to understand. This is what Jesus told him when the Spirit comes. Then you will understand the things that I've spoken to you. Then the Holy Spirit will call to your mind all the things that you've heard me say. He will put the pieces of the puzzle together and you will understand. And you see Thomas. My God. I don't think that it's that Thomas finally realized he's God, but it grips him fully who he is. This one is truly God. And thus, for this reason, he came into the world. And you remember that the Jews, this is what scandalized them. Jesus has been claiming that he's deity. And they, they scoff. He makes himself out to be the son of God. Who does he think he is? We know who he is. He's from Nazareth. He's Joseph and Mary's son. And thus, steeped in unbelief, raw unbelief. They could not own that Jesus was God. And he is. And he has been. And he has proved it. In the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, Thomas has been there, as we might say, on a front row seat. He no longer dots the resurrection. So what Thomas is believing here, we should not understand, okay, Thomas is finally converted. What he believes is the resurrection. That key component. He comes to understand this is what was foretold even through the prophet Isaiah. So we saw in chapter 53, he believes that this one is truly God, the Lord's Christ, who came into the world to save sinners. Thomas handled Jesus. You know, whether he did it this occasion, he handled Jesus. So did the other apostles. This is what John bears witness to in his first letter to the churches. Turn with me over to 1 John chapter 1. Here's what John says. Notice his pronoun, we. He's talking about the disciples. That which was from the beginning. Do you hear echoes of John 1? Even echoing all the way back to the creation account. John ties it. Here it is again. He keeps that theme. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. He's talking about Christ. Which we have seen with our eyes. Which we have looked upon. Our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these sayings we write to you that your joy may be full. Do you notice that John's purpose statement? Right at the first of this letter, we find it at the end of his gospel. John's writing, Thomas, but not Thomas alone, they handled Christ. They saw him, they beheld him. Is your confession, the confession of your heart, like Thomas's? Is it your confession? Can you say from the heart, my Lord and my God? We, we deal with the uh, first commandment on a regular basis as we make our way through the law week after week. Have no other gods before me. God alone, as he's presented himself to us in his son, my Lord and my God. Indeed, if that is your confession, then praise the name of the Lord. For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But the Father who is in heaven, and he has revealed this saving truth by his word and spirit. I hope that you're thinking of Matthew 16, 
where Jesus speaks to these same disciples. Who do men say that I am? And they offer up different suggestions. Then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's confession is on the behalf of the whole. And Jesus' blessing that comes after that is for the whole. It's again, y'all, not you, Peter. It's to the whole of them. But consider this. What did Peter say? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the confession that we are to believe, that we are to give. And it was there with Peter. It is here from Thomas. It is what God would have us to believe. That brings us then to the next point. The blessing of saving faith. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. So Thomas had visible evidence. He saw the risen Christ. He saw the the nail-pierced hands and, and presumably touched Christ in the side. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Scripture makes it clear that saving faith is not received through the senses. Children, you have hands, right? You have hands, you can touch stuff, you have eyes, you can see, you have ears, you can hear, you have a nose, you can smell with. These are our senses, and and these are created by God, and they're such a blessing to have. We, We explore our world around us. You probably don't remember this, but when you're little babies, your most common way to examine something, to explore it, was to put it in your mouth. Perhaps you've seen that with a child. But that's not how we come to understand who Jesus is. Your eyes and ears and nose and hands cannot help you to know who Jesus is. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. He's the one who gives us the gift of faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves, but is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Thomas had saving faith from above. Even as Jesus, back in chapter 3, Nicodemus came to him by night. Jesus just cuts through everything, whatever Nicodemus' questions or whatever he came with. He says, you must be born again. To this religious teacher, you must be born again. And then he goes on to say, you must be born from above. That is, this, this is the work of God. And then he's more specific, you must be born of the Spirit. That is true for any sinner who would have saving faith and be able to confess with their mouth, my Lord and my God. You must be born of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who works in us. And Thomas is confirmed in that. Jesus speaks that you have believed. Thomas's doubts are gone, and Jesus says, you have believed. Yes, you've seen. You've seen me in the resurrection. But then Jesus says, there will be those who do not see me, the resurrected Christ, and yet believe that I am risen from the dead. Do you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead? I hope that you all do. Have you seen the resurrected Christ as Thomas did? You have not. And yet you believe. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. It's the Spirit through the Word that gives us the eye of faith to see Christ. Paul uh, speaks this way to the Galatians. I think it's the opening of chapter 3 where he says, You have seen Christ crucified. Well, the Galatians were not in Jerusalem. He's saying through the eye of faith they have seen Christ crucified. Jesus says, Blessed. That word is, we, we talk about the Beatitudes. Where do you see a great cluster of Beatitudes? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. There's uh, nine blessings there, blessings, the Beatitude. There's only two in John's Gospel. This one, and then back in John 13, 17 as well. Blessed. What does this word mean? It does not mean happy, as the NIV sadly translates it. This word has within it a note of admonition. D.A. Carson, I'm not quoting, but he he points out that blessed are those who meet the conditions. They are pronounced as accepted by God. Thomas and the others, they're they're blessed because they believe that Christ is raised from the dead. Those in that room that night or that day, we're not told whether this one's evening, but that day, they've seen Christ. 
They are eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. And that was critical for them. This was essential for they're the ones that Christ is commissioned. We saw in the previous passage, he's commissioned. He's sending them to the nations. He's sending them out to bear witness to what they have seen as eyewitnesses. God has appointed them to be witnesses of all of Christ's ministry, in particular to this fact that men stumbled over that he is risen. And yes, they were blessed. And we are blessed if we believe that with the whole of the gospel. Since that time, a host of sinners, as numerous as the sand upon the seashore, have believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they are blessed. Jesus is saying that they are just as blessed as Thomas. The blessing, the certainty of God's blessing and care for us, the the peace that God gives us that passes all understanding, we have it as they do because we are justified by faith in Christ. And what have I said to you before? When you enter into heaven, you will be no more justified than when you first believe. It is a singular act of God by His Spirit when He counts us as righteous in His sight because we have faith in Christ and that faith He has given unto us. Some application. Unbelief is an ugly truth. Unbelief is an ugly truth. A sober reality. Some wrongly believe that their faith is stronger than the Holy Spirit of God to change them. That their faith and their condition is so, they're so far gone that God cannot even reach them. I've said from this pulpit before, you cannot dig yourself a hole so deep, but that God will find you there. And your sin cannot be so great, but God's grace in Christ is greater still. Maybe you doubt for yourself that God can change your sinful heart. Maybe you doubt the ability of God to take out that stony heart that you have and give you a heart of flesh, a heart of faith. But it is the Holy Spirit alone who changes the sinner's heart. It is not dependent upon you and what you're able to do. It is all of God that all the glory would be unto God. And that we, like Thomas, would say, My Lord and my God, that we would give praise to God for His mercy on us as sinners. Do you now believe? Do you surrender all to the Lord Jesus Christ? We close out then with John's reason for writing. We've seen this uh, throughout John's Gospel. He'll be narrating things that are happening and he'll put in some explanation or he'll tie one event to the next. We've seen that all the way along. And here John, drawing to a close, he makes this announcement. He's looking back over the history that he's had with Christ. He says, and truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Many other signs that are not written in this book. But then he says very specifically, but these are written. The things that I have recorded from my eyewitness experience, what I've heard with my ears, these I have recorded. Why? Well, we would understand because the Holy Spirit has led him along, but there's, there's a selectivity. He, is, he has taken the host of what he's seen and the host of what he's heard, and he said, these are written. Why? That you may believe. John said, I wrote these particularly so that you may believe, what? That Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one of God. He is the Messiah, as Christ means, the anointed one. He is that one. He is the long expected one. He is the one that the prophets foretold of. Jesus is the Christ. He says, I've written these things so that you would believe that he is the Christ and that you would believe he is the Son of God. He is God incarnate. God come down from heaven. God coming down and the form of a, a child taking to himself our humanity by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, as we confess in our creeds of his flesh, it's just of Mary, his humanity is true humanity. But he is the Son of God from all eternity. In the beginning, and was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is God. And John has begun with that. And he said, I've written these particular things that you would believe that. And if you believe that, what is the blessedness? What's the beatitude that comes to you? That believing 
You may have life in his name. Apart from Christ, this is the raw truth. You are dead. God said to Adam, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will surely die. And he did, and he died. And all of Adam's descendants are born spiritually dead. My friends, if you have not Christ, child, if you don't have Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. But God has come with a word of hope. He's come with a gospel that if you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the Christ, He is the Son of God, you will have life. For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, may it be our confession, as Thomas did, Christ Jesus is my Lord and my God. Father, we acknowledge that if that is our confession, if we have this hope in Christ, that if indeed we are bound up in Him by faith, it is the work that You have done in us, not a work that we have done in ourselves, that You would receive all the praise. And so we, we bless You, O God, our Father, that You sent Your only begotten Son into the world to save sinners as we all are. We bless You, O Christ, that You came, that You were willing to leave Your throne and glory and to stoop and humble Yourself to come amongst the children of men, to walk in the midst, to be made under the law, to keep the law, on our behalf, and that you went to the cross bearing our sins, and there you receive the wrath of God that we deserved. You stood in our place. You were our substitute. You were the Passover lamb, even the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we praise you, O Holy Spirit, that you have equipped men of old and men and women, boys and girls, down through the generations to hear this gospel message and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And, O oh God, we bless you and praise you that you've worked in our hearts, that we believe and we plead with you, O oh God, that you would work in our children's heart, even as you have put your sign and seal of the covenant upon them, that you are their God. O oh God, may you be known to them as their Father through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, that they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And we will ever praise you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.